preaching from is found in Psalm 45. Psalm 45. And I'll pray while you get there. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for all of your goodness. Thank you for this country that we are able to celebrate today, that we have freedoms others simply do not have. We're so thankful for them. We're so thankful that we can come here freely. We're so thankful that we have your word. It's not burned by the state. It's not hunted down, but we have it freely, Lord. I thank you that we're able to be here today. And I thank you more than anything else for your son, Jesus. I pray that he would be seen clearly today through your word, that you would help me preach him clearly and not talk too fast, that you would uh, help us see Christ and turn our eyes to him. In Jesus' name, amen. As I grow older and older, um, when I was a kid, my favorite season was winter. But when I grow older and older I get, the more I love summer. Uh, I don't like the cold anymore. Once I start driving, I don't like it, the snow. The snow's not fun. I do not like it. Uh, I love summer for its heat. I love just the general fun atmosphere of it all. But one of the main things I love about summer is that it's the season of weddings. Yesterday, and I, if you ever go to Boyce College, you'll know it's a wedding machine over there. I don't know what they put in the water or what they put in the food or if there was a class that I, I missed on or somehow, but they, it just happens there all the time. It's a wedding machine. My roommate had a wedding yesterday, and I'm in a wedding next week, my eighth one and counting. Uh, there's just so many weddings, and I'm not much of a romantic person. I don't have much of a romantic bone in my body, but I do love weddings. I love being a groomsman. I love being having that front row seat to uh, seeing a union between a man and a woman for the rest of their lives. I love seeing the bride come in and then looking out the corner of my eye to see if my friend's crying like a baby or not. And uh, so I can make fun of him later. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but I, we all love that. Even if you don't love dressing up, I think there's something hardwired in us that loves weddings. Our culture, even though it's degraded marriage so much through sexual immorality, rampant divorce, and so-called same-sex marriage, there's still this ingrained love of weddings and marriages in us. It's in our best stories, the best Disney movies like Cinderella and Little Mermaid. They end with a wedding. The greatest epic, I think, movies you could have are The Lord of the Rings. It ends with the wedding of Aragorn. And Somehow, the only time when the, the people in this country care about the royal family in Britain is when they're getting married or having a baby. Uh, we still love weddings. We are hardwired for it because the ultimate, the greatest story of all ends with a wedding also. The book of Revelation ends with a uh, wedding, the bride of Christ coming down. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of the Bible's pictures of imagery and of weddings and marriages, like Song of Solomon uh, Revelation, Ephesians, and today in Psalm 45, we see a picture of a wedding because the Bible knows that uh, there is that want and desire in us because it turns out weddings aren't an end to themselves. The Bible is clear. Jesus is clear. Weddings won't be forever. There won't be marriage in heaven. There will not be giving into marriage or marriage. We'll be like the angels, Jesus says. So what's the point of it? Why do we have this ingrained in our hearts? Because marriage was never meant to point to itself. It was meant to point to Christ and the church, this eternal union. It's like the sacrifices of the Old Testament. They weren't meant to go on forever, but when the fullness comes, it's done away with. 
And yes, marriage on this earth is so great and so lovely, but greater is what all marriages point to. The Lord Jesus Christ, wedding, marriage, union with his people. And that's where we see a big difference between how the Bible presents marriages and weddings and how uh, we do in our culture. In our culture, if there's a wedding, the spotlight is always on the bride. It's her big day. But in the biblical portrayals, such as Psalm 45, the wedding, the focus of the wedding is on the groom. And it's not because uh, men are more important than women or look better it's, or any other arbitrary reason than that. Rather, it's because the, the groom points to Jesus. He's the center of it. And today in Psalm 45, we're going to see a royal wedding taking place where the psalmist looks forward to an ultimate king of David who will wed his bride and be triumphant and glorious. You'll see that this groom in Psalm 45 isn't just a dead king of old. He's not David. He's not Solomon. No one could fit this description. We'll see that it's someone who is a man and God. We'll see it's someone who the writer of Hebrews, as Hunter read to us earlier, says is talking about Jesus. This psalm today is about Jesus. My goal today is that you would become more than just a passive watcher uh, in the greatest wedding scene ever imagined, that you would see our Christ in all of his glory and his person and work, that you would realize the weight of the one we have been united to, that seeing him as he really is, you would once again commit yourself to him and cut off all other rivals. We need to see Christ today. I praise God for this country But we need Christ more than anything today. We need to be thankful for him. We need to see him. We need to turn our eyes to him. The world is too dark. Sin is too strong. And he is too good for us to miss out on his glory today. And that's what we'll see in Psalm 45, that we would see who our groom is and fall in love with him. And that's where we start in verse 1. We get a preamble, a preface of sorts in verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. This psalm begins very different than almost every other psalm. The psalmist gives us his state of mind, his emotional state as he writes this. Uh, they don't, the sons of Korah wrote many psalms, but they never start it like this. This seems like this is going to be a good one. Um, that his heart is overflowing. He's not passive. He's not bored. He's not writing this song because he has to out of a cold sense of duty. It comes from an overflow of the heart. The Hebrew word is literally boiling over. He's like a balloon like about to pop. The truth that he knows he's meditating on is boiling in his heart. It's moving. It's not static. Water water that boils always makes a noise. You can always tell when water's boiling in the house. It's bubbling. It's splashing everywhere. Same thing with water, or differently, oppositely, with uh, water that's freezing, water that doesn't move, water that stays cold and cold. It's silent. In the same way, truth that actually affects our hearts, that boils in our hearts, always ends with a sound. It always creates a song. But water or truth that doesn't affect our heart, that stays inactive, static, that freezes, is deadly quiet. And that's not the psalmist. His heart is overflowing. His heart is boiling over with a pleasing theme. And that pleasing theme isn't a cold statement of facts. It's not a cold theological formula. It's not dry moral teachings 
or laws, but as a living and breathing person, he is addressing. He's addressing the king, which I believe is our Lord Jesus. He's looking forward to. And that makes us question, why is our hearts often not overflowing? Why are we not having overflowing, boiling hearts? Why is it so hard for us to be sincere in our worship? Why is it so easy for us to sit under the king's word Sunday after Sunday uh, and then I'm constantly being trying to ha- wandering in my mind thinking about what I'm going to eat after this when Christ is being presented? What is wrong with us? Why is it so hard for us to speak of Jesus to one another? It's hard for us to talk about him to unbelievers. We'd rather talk about literally anything else. Let's talk about sports. Let's talk about the weather. Let's not talk about him. It's even hard for us to talk about him to other Christians. Even in a Bible-saturated place like Southern Seminary, I was there for five years, and I saw this in myself, people love talking about everything in the Bible. They love talking about the controversies of the Bible, the worldviews of the Bible, the doctrines of the Bible, the politics of the Bible, but rarely do they talk about the Christ of the Bible, the thing it's all about. Our hearts are prone to be freezing. Our tongues are rarely ready pins, as the psalmist is. The problem does not lie with the worthiness of our king. He's not, he didn't become less worthy in between now and then. He, if the problem is found in us. The problem is, if anyone in this room's heart does not boil over at the name of Jesus, it's not because he's not worthy of it. It's because you don't know him. Anyone who does not know Jesus doesn't love him. If you don't love Jesus, it's simply because you do not know him. You either have forgotten him or you have never known him at all. And if anyone here in here does not love Jesus, it's one of two reasons. You either forgot about him or you never knew him at all. And I want to have an overflowing heart. I want everyone in this room to have an overflowing heart like the psalmist. But to get there, we must be acquainted with our king, acquainted with the pleasing theme. That our king, when we need to see him either for the first time or once again, and he's going to present it to us and Uh, Verse 2, he presents us and introduces us to the groom. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Now, the psalmist officially starts. He goes into his song, and it's about a king. It's about the most handsome of men. Saul is called uh, tall and handsome. He's a head taller than all the rest, King Saul. David is called ruddy and handsome, but Jesus is the most handsome of men. And of course, I believe he is very handsome physically, but we don't have a picture of him, Uh, especially in his glorified state. I believe we should be taking this to mean he's beautiful, he's glorious in his person and all that he does. Jesus Christ is the most beautiful person there is. Everything about him is good news. There is no ugliness found in him. The best of human beauty we could ever have, physical beauty, has an inconsistency to it. There's a flaw. Or the best of human beauty, it goes away with age, but not so with Jesus. His beauty is seen in everything he does, everything he is. He has all perfections in him, high perfections. That is, lofty perfections of all being all-powerful, all-knowing, all being everywhere at once. He has all glory. There's angels upon angels, thousands and thousands of angels surrounding him right now, praising his name day and night, forever and ever. But he also has lowly perfections, low perfections. He's, no one's ever been more humble than Jesus Christ. 
No one's never ever loved more than him. No one's ever died and suffered like he has. There's two, there's two animals that couldn't be more unlike each other. There's two animals that couldn't be more different, a lion and a lamb. A lion is a king of the jungle. People are afraid of lions. I would be afraid of a lion, but no one's afraid of a lamb. Uh, uh, lions are predators. Lambs are prey. Lions kill things. Lambs die. But there's never been a person who could be rightly described in the same breath as a lion and a lamb. Yet in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have that person. We're all Goodness, all perfections of creator and creature find their stage to act on. He has goodness and beauty follows him wherever he does and whatever he goes. Beauty is revealed in his creation where he created everything by his power. We see his goodness in the world, the gifts we have. Beauty comes near to us in his incarnation where he is born of a virgin, becomes one with us, our Emmanuel, God with us. Beauty is demonstrated in his righteous life in ministry, where he shows us who righteousness, what it really is for us and for our salvation. Beauty amazes us at the cross, where he shows the two seemingly opposite attributes, wrath and mercy, embrace each other on the cross and show their pinnacle. Beauty triumphs in his resurrection where it outshines the ugliness of sin and death, the things that make this world so ugly, so terrible, he destroys it, outshines it forever. Beauty reigns in his ascension where he took on the right hand of throne, where all dominion was given to him. And now he reigns by his spirit to spread that beauty throughout the world. And beauty will soon be completed when he comes back again, where he will one finally and definitively Get rid of all the sin and death in this world, the ugliness, and make the world as beautiful as he is. That's who our Christ is. Beauty finds everything in Jesus Christ. Everything about Jesus is beautiful, fair, and handsome, and we need the eyes to see it. Oh, how prone we are to settle with the ugliness of sin, these things of this world uh, that we talked about and turn our eyes to Jesus. They, they are dim compared to him. His brightness uh, is, outshines all. And we're so prone to settle, so prone to be easily satisfied when perfection is being offered to us in Christ. Fisherville, I, pro- I pray that you would always be meditating on the fairness and beauty of our Lord, our King, in every battle with despair and temptation. But the psalmist goes on. Jesus is not just a pretty face. He's not, we all know someone who looks fine, but as soon as they talk, we want to run for the hills because of the ignorance that comes out of their mouth. But Jesus is not like that. He puts his money where his mouth is. He um, has gracious speech. Grace is what fills his lips. His word is nothing to us but grace. The men of his day rightly exclaim, no one has ever talked like this man. No one has ever spoken like this man. And they were right. No one's word has ever raised the dead. No one's word has ever healed. No one's word can change the most callous of hearts. And a mere word from our Lord's precious lips can change the darkest of our midnights into the brightest of mornings. His promises give us hope. His warnings give us soberness. And his teachings give us a true way to be human, to live a life worth living. 
His words are not far from us. And if there's one thing to be thankful today about living in this country, it's that this book isn't getting rounded up and being burned. That's the thing I'm most thankful of, that there's so many countries, so many brothers and sisters throughout this world who would either don't have this book, don't have his words readily available, or the word, they have to hide it. But we don't. We have it so accessible. We have so many copies, so many translations. We have it near to us. His gracious words right here in a book. But even with that accessibility comes greater judgment on our part. We have more access than any other country ever in existence, but rarely do we read it. Rarely do we come to see his gracious words, to hear from his gracious lips. This is the word that gives us grace and strength to fight the good fight that we've been called to, to make us hopeful for tomorrow, to give us hope and comfort but we are so prone to go to other lips, other words. We, have, we live in more words now more than other, ever. There's social media. Everyone has a word that they're trying to get around today. We have news. We have TV. People tell me when, uh, they don't read the Bible very much because they simply don't like reading. I'm not buying it, though. If you spend 30 minutes on social media or Facebook or Twitter, what are you doing? You're reading. And if for 30 minutes, you could have read about five chapters in the Bible. You want, you are so, we are so prone to settle for the words of the world that corrupt when Jesus has offered, offered us from his lips grace upon grace. We are prone to settle for mud pies when Jesus has offered us chocolate cake. Come to ki- the king whose words are filled with grace. So we see Jesus is beautiful. His lips are full of grace. But this is a matter of subjectivity. Maybe Jesus is beautiful to some people and maybe not to others. Maybe he's good for you, but he's not good for me. Beauty's subjective, isn't it? But not according to God. At the end of verse 2, God gives his royal opinion, his official opinion, that it's not just mere subjectivity. Jesus is objectively the most handsome of men and the most gracious of men because God has declared him blessed. The one who defines reality says Jesus is these things. It's not a matter of mere human opinion, and we must take that seriously. So the psalmist has introduced us to the groom, this radiant, this glorious king, this groom, and now he tells us what he does, what his conquering and his war is. In verses 3 to 5, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty, and your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Having, so we've seen the king, but now the psalmist calls the king to action. He calls him to gird his sword. That is a call to go out and battle. We don't want a Christ who is just a pretty face that sits there up and looks pretty all day. Our Christ works. Our Christ conquers. Our Christ goes to war. He girds his sword. And that sword isn't a physical sword. Nowhere in the Bible is Jesus described as having a physical sword. That sword is the sword of the Spirit, his word. He has the sword of his mouth, as Revelation calls it. It's by his word that he goes out and conquers. It's by uh, that he's doing it right now. It's by his word he heals. It's by his word he uh, does miracles. It's by his word he saves captive hearts. 
And this Sunday, his word is going out through thousands of churches across the world. The word, his word is being preached, and it will not come back to him empty. He is warring. Uh, where his people are being convicted by the word, healed by the word, and saved by his word throughout all the world. And it is by his word that he's going to come back and strike down the nations and the man of lawlessness. And the world is so broken and ugly due to sin. And if our Christ is as beautiful and good as verse 2 says he is, then we have to be desperately praying, verse 3, that our Savior, our King, our husband would go forward and gird his sword and act in this world by his word. And our Lord does heed our prayers in verse 4. He rides forth on his chariot and he goes victoriously. There has never been a battle where Jesus has not been the victor. There has never been a war where Jesus has not been triumphant. No one wants to be married to a loser, and we don't have that in Christ. He is the champion of champions. He has never lost, nor will he ever lose in the future. A recent politician claimed if he got elected, uh, people in this country would win so much they'd be tired of winning. But then he ended up losing an election, ironically. Uh, but not so with our Lord Jesus Christ. He never loses. He always keeps good on his promises. And if you're on his side, you will win forever too. And that can be hard for us to believe. That if we look in our culture, if we look in this country, it seems that Jesus maybe perhaps isn't winning. More and more people are falling into ideologies of Marxism and secularism. Less and less people are going to church, even Bible-believing ones. It seems that Jesus is losing this country, this culture. But this verse corrects that temptation, corrects that despair. Jesus is not losing. He always wins. But Jesus wins battles and fights battles that aren't the battles we often think should be won. In the book of Joshua, when Joshua meets the pre-incarnate Christ, the commander of the host of the Lord's armies, uh, he asks uh, the, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Lord he says, are you with us or with our adversaries? And the pre-incarnate Christ tells him, no. He doesn't answer the question. He says, I am the commander of the Lord's armies. That's how he answers it. Jesus isn't fighting our wars. He's not fighting for a political party. He's not fighting a culture war. He's not fighting for so-called social justice, nor is he fighting to make America great again. He is waging his own war based on his goals, not ours. He is fighting for things that actually matter, things that are eternal. Our Lord fights for, we see in verse 4, the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. In the ancient world, we can read about what kings did when they conquered. Uh, Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, uh, Julius Caesar, when they conquered, it was for the cause of more and more land and uh, more and more power. Uh, And what was left in the wake was rape, destruction, and death. But that is not how our Jesus wars. He does war, but his war is for truth, meekness, and righteousness. He fights to ever make the truth known, the real truth, God's truth that never changes. Uh, That we, who we are and who God is, that God is the creator. He's worthy of all our praise and worship. He's all good, and we are made in his image. And this is his creation. But we have messed everything up by sin. This creation has been messed and ravaged by our sin, and we are condemned to die because of it. But God has sent this king, this Lord Jesus, to tell us the truth that there is a gospel, there is good news, that we, he has come to save us. Jesus comes 
for the cause of meekness. He is not like the world. The kingdoms of this world, how you enter them is by puffing yourself up, by using force, killing people if need be. But our Christ cause is not so. He wants us to humble ourselves, to deny ourselves, even die to ourselves, that we may have him, that we may have a good, low position before our God. And he also rides out for righteousness, true justice. Our king seeks to establish his God's righteous rule throughout all creation, that every sin will be taken care of by his sword. And we see just how good he is at that warring in verse 5, where, we, uh, where it says his arrows are sharp and it goes into the hearts of the king's enemies and peoples fall under him. He's good at his job. He's a good conqueror. And his arrows are always aimed for the heart and he never misses. And we think maybe we're not a part of this, but according to Romans 5, we're all naturally enemies of God. And he will deal with us. Be assured of one thing. If you're gonna listen to one thing today, listen to this that Jesus Christ will deal with the sin of everyone in this room. He will deal with your sin in one way or another. It will not go unchecked. He is bringing forth righteousness. It will be brought to justice. He never loses. You can't hide on it. He will either uh, get your sin and deal with it by your eternal damnation. That is throwing you into the lake of fire where we, we deserve because of our sin. Because we have... Uh, rebelled against eternal God. He'll either cast you into the hell or he will deal with your sin on his cross. He will take the punishment upon himself. But he will deal with sin. There is, that is 100% sure. Isaiah 45 and Philippians 2 proclaim that there is soon coming a day where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone in this room will be bowing that day. Everyone in the room will fall under him. You'll either fall under him because you bowed the knee in worship or you'll fall under him because he broke your knees. Bend, bend your knee now, I beg you, before he comes and breaks you. You will fall under him. You will be struck in the heart either by an arrow of wrath or mercy. Be assured that he always wins. He always rides out victoriously. So that is our king in his victory. That is our king in his conquest. That's what he does. And now we see the grounding of this. How could there be a king like this? A king so handsome, so beautiful, so powerful, so victorious. In verse 6 to 7, we find out. We read, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. So this is the grounding. How could there be a king this beautiful, this powerful? And maybe some of you think I've been stretching it by applying this text to Jesus. But here, the king, the groom, is clearly called God in verse 6. You can read the commentators, even the most liberal ones. They try to do backflips to try to get over this. It was added later. This is that, this blah, blah, blah. But the person, the king, the groom of Psalm 45 is a man. We see that in verse 2. He's the most handsome of men. But he's also God. He's called God in verse 6. He's man and God. This has to be. I don't know anyone else who is man and God, unless you guys do. You can tell me later. But that is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is God and man. 
That's why he's so beautiful. That's why he's so powerful. The kingly bridegroom of Psalm 45 is explicitly called God. Our Lord is a man. We do worship a man, but we do not worship a mere man. He is the God man. Jesus is so lovely because he is God and only a fool fails to see that. Jesus is no usurper or tyrant. He has his throne by right. He has always had his throne. He didn't have to win an election. He didn't have to uh, conquer to get that throne. It's always been his throne. He has a throne that's forever and ever. His kingdom never will end because he never started being king. He's always been king, period. Regimes and political powers and nations rise and fall, but his throne, his upright throne, stands forever. And that's an anchor for us in all times of change and uncertainty. And in Fisherville, we're going through a time of transition. Our beloved pastors are being called somewhere else, Pastor Brian and Pastor Jonathan. Pastor Jonathan's leaving today. And that's hard. These men have blessed our church so much. We've grown numerically, but even more, we've grown spiritually under their godly care. And the temptation is to think it'll all stop once they're gone. But by no means, though. We must remember that our divine husband, our king's throne, stands forever and ever. Because it turns out there's no such thing as a permanent pastor. Every pastor is an interim pastor because God is our only pastor. He is our only uh, king, our only caretaker. And Pastor Jonathan and Pastor uh, Brian were so good, but they were always meant to be temporary. That's what God had planned for us. But our king, our groom, still stands on the throne forever and ever. He's not leaving. He's never started being our king and he'll never end. He's always been that. And even a time of change like this, we must remember our head shepherd, that our head pastor has not changed and he will not change. He'll still take care of us. And his authority remains unchanged. And he will take care of us forever and ever if we remain faithful to him. And that's who our, he's God. Our groom is God. He stands forever and ever. But also in verse 7, it gets kind of even more confusing. In verse 7, we see this God called, has a God. God, your God, has anointed you. So there is very confusing, but this is what our great mystery of the faith is, that the, there's a trinity. God is trinity, that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. All can be rightly called God. So in verse 6, the Son is called God. In verse 7, God, your God, is the Father. We see what's an, a, a, a glimpse of an interaction between the Holy Trinity, God the Father doesn't just sit around and just let Jesus uh, do whatever he wants. No, it's because God the Father has anointed him. God the Father has put his stamp of approval on him. He's made him our Messiah. He said, you are the Messiah. It's what some theologians call the covenant of redemption, that God the Father has made God the Son our Messiah, our Christ. And that's what hopefully we know, that Christ is not his last name. Jesus Christ is his title. Christ is his title. It means Messiah. It means anointed one. And who anointed him? Who made him that king? That king who's to bring about all of God's promises and rule over us? It wasn't us. We didn't vote for him. He didn't just uh, come in because there was no one else. No, God the Father has made him our Messiah with an oil of gladness beyond his companions. No one else was worthy of this. Uh, no one else in all of biblical history. David wasn't worth it. Day, uh, Solomon wasn't worth it. Only Jesus is 
qualified to be our Messiah. And what qualifies him? It's his holy and righteous character. In a day and age where character is becoming less and less uh, a qualification for leadership, uh, people even in the church think it's as long as you do the right things or say the right things or maybe you have the right policies, character doesn't matter. Not so with God. What qualifies Jesus to be our Messiah is that he loves righteousness and hates wickedness in verse 7. Jesus loves all that is lovely and hates all that is hateful. He is a consistent man. He knows what's right and he does it. And even the most godliest of men in all of history that we know have blind spots. Terrible, terrible inconsistencies. We can just think about church history. We can think of David who was a man after God's own heart, but committed adultery and murder. We can think of Martin Luther, the great reformer who recovered the gospel of grace. He hated Jews. He wrote such terrible things against them. And then also the great and godly and brilliant men who started Southern Seminary, who knew the Bible like the back of their hands, actively defended the subjugation of people who had a different skin color than they did. How is it that the godliest people we know are found to be hypocrites in one aspect or another? Can anyone truly be trusted? Can anyone really be looked up to? Recently, uh, Robbie Zacharias, a great apologist, has shown to be so inconsistent to say the least. And it's wrecked the faith of someone. I know some people who have bothered by that so much. When someone high and good shows shows to be a hypocrite, it wrecks everything. In our world right now, the cancel culture is going through history and looking at, finding out that, wow, people in the past are a lot like people like us. They're bad people. They, the people, the great founding fathers, praise God for them. They started this great country uh, and wrote in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. But apparently they thought some men are more equal than others because they defended the disgusting institution of slavery. Martin Luther King a great orator and a great civil rights leader who said people should not be judged by their skin but by their character ended up having a terrible character when it came to his wife. He was a serial adulterer. These men, the world is in desperate need and a desperate search for a leader who can be followed without reservation and apology. Jesus and him alone is that answer. He is someone you won't ever find any dirt on, someone you don't ever have to cover up for or make an excuse for. He always does what's right because he loves what's right and hates what's wrong. And that is our king. That, that good king who is godly in character is our Messiah. And because of this, God has exalted him. We see him in his exalted throne room in verses 8 through 9. Your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassay. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen and gold of Ophir. So we see the king now done from his conquest in his throne room. He has robes that just radiate the most expensive and lavish of fragrances and perfumes. And all these perfumes show us simply that all sweetness meet in Jesus and is po- are poured forth wherever he is present. Jesus is someone who is pleasant to be around. He doesn't have B.O. He, he smells nice. He's good to be around. He's someone who's pleasant to be around. He has music in his halls. He has the greatest of architecture. 
Some people think that don't want to go to heaven. They think it's boring. I've heard that so many times. But here we see a throne room of heaven is not boring. There's architecture. There's music that makes even the king glad. There's good company. But overall, why the throne room of heaven, why heaven is not boring is because Jesus is there. Because the one who's on the throne of heaven takes my breath away. That he is the one I've read so much about. I, it's hard for me to get interested much in things, to tell the truth. But I've read thousands of pages of, about him. I've read books upon books, his word. But he still marvels me. He still is a mystery to me. I can't ever peg him down. He's so high and lofty and glorious, but at the same time, he's so close and near and lowly. His miracles, his teaching, he's able to use such word pictures that, uh, in parables. He's able to confound us with what he's doing right now. He's able to uh, love us even now. He gives us his spirit. He's coming soon again. Everything about him is interesting. Heaven is lovely because he is lovely. And that's why we want to be there. That's where we show up. Those who love that Christ, those who see him as lovely, we will appear in that throne room. And that's where the bride finally makes her appearance at the end of verse 9. The queen stands in gold of Ophir. So we spent all this time on the groom, but now we see the bride finally makes her appearance. And as I think we've proven, I think rightly, that Jesus is the groom of Psalm 45. And if that's true, then I think the bride has to be his church, his people. Those here at Fisherville are now in view, and the psalmist has advice for us. He wants to give us an exhortation in verses 10 through 11. I'll read. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. So the wedding singer now turns his attention to the bride and gives her some advice for her big day. He calls her to forget her people, her father's house. When a woman gets married, she is fundamentally changing her identity. She is taking on a new name to show that she is a part of a new family. And this was even more true in the ancient world especially if you are a foreign bride engaged to a king. A foreign bride of the king would have to leave their home, their family, probably never to see them again. They have to leave their culture, their language, their religion, their whole identity would have to be left to take on the king. And that, and that change must also take place in us. We are not naturally a part of God's family, according to the Bible. And our, we're our, in Adam we have inherited his sin. We have, our culture is evil. Our home is evil. We need to deny that. We need to get rid of everything in the old man. Be assured that Jesus is so compassionate and kind and gracious and patient. But be equally assured that Jesus will not tolerate any rivals. He will not tolerate us uh, being free and going after other men. He demands first place in everything. He will either be your everything or he will be your nothing. There is no in-between with him. Family ties, cultures, wants, and desires all must fall before him if he is to be your Christ, your husband. His demands are harsh, but they are clear. In Matthew 10, 37, 39, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For him to be our royal husband, it will cost us everything. Worldliness and sin have to go. There ought not to be any tolerance for those things. He must be our everything or he will be our nothing. The cost is very, very high. And that's why Jesus says, count the cost. But the payoff is most worth it. We turn from our natural father, the devil, Adam, and turn to him. It says at the beginning of verse 11, the king will desire our beauty, his love. The king promises if we come to him, he won't be cold to us. He will give us love and desire, an eternal love that won't ever end. Everything earthly, everything in the old nature, in the old creation is coming to an end. A total destruction is happening. We need to deny it, to leave it. But his desire, his love lasts forever. And it's an easy choice. There's, you either get something that's temporal, that won't satisfy, and stay with your father, stay with the old world, the old kingdom that's going to be destroyed, or you can come to him and have eternal love. A musician, a recent musician puts it well. Anything keeping us from Jesus is not worth keeping. Anything keeping us from Christ is not worth keeping. If it's, there's a sin in your life, if there's even a relationship, if there's a habit, if there's anything that's keeping you from him, it's not worth keeping. Get rid of it and his desire will be for you. And then in verse 11, we also see that our husband does not only require our awe and dedication, he requires our worship. He is not simply content that we be a fan of him or just good friends. He wants us to worship. The psalmist tells us to bow to our Lord, bow to our king, our husband. And the modern church uh, has such sloppy language, I think, for so many things. I was raised, uh, how do you become a Christian is by making Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but uh, verse 11, I think, shows some of the sloppiness. We don't make Jesus Lord. He's always Lord. We bow to him because he is Lord, whether you admit it or not. We don't make Jesus anything. He is Lord and Savior. We don't make him Lord and Savior. We bow to him because he is the Lord of all, whether people admit it or not. He is the Lord of the drunkard in a bar right now. Uh, he is the Lord of an idol worshiper across the world right now who's never even heard his name. He is the Lord of every dictator and tyrant and politician that puffs himself against him. He is the Lord of all and only Christians. Christians are the only people in the whole entire world who actually have a grip on reality. God has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. He's raised. He is exalted. He's the king whether you admit it or not. And Christians are the only people that actually live according to that truth. The world is in a delusion. It's in denial. But we are the ones that actually live according to the facts. Jesus is Lord, thus we worship to him. Thus we bow to him. Yes, Jesus is our gracious savior, our husband, our brother, our friend, but we are not equals with him. Never uh, be too comfortable. He is our Lord, and we must bow the knee in humble worship. And if we take the psalmist's advice, we leave the world, we leave our fathers, and we bow to Christ and come to him, there's glory set before us. The wedding finally happens in verses 12 through 15. 
I'll read. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the peoples. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions falling behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. So this is, we see the glory that happens after. The queen has taken the advice and she is now on her procession to the king. We are now going towards the king if we have uh, turned away from the world and bowed to him. We are united to him. And now she has all the glory that fits royalty. She has gold, she has robes, she has companions, and she has joy and gladness. And she's going to the king's house, not just to stay there for a bit, not for a few days or months. No, she's going to stay at the king's palace forever. It'll be her home. It'll be her palace. This is what we see, that the king's glory has become hers. She has been united to him by marriage. His riches have become her riches. His palace will become her palace. This is the hope of every Christian in verse 15, that we are going to the palace of the king to make our home there. And when a husband and a wife get married, everything that is one spouse becomes the other. They become one. Whether property, uh, money, or even debt, everything becomes in one account when you're married. And this is the foundation of every spiritual blessing that you will ever receive from God. Think about that. Why do you have any blessing from God? What gives us the audacity to call God our Father? What gives us the audacity to claim that someone else's righteousness is enough to save me? I don't have to do works. What gives us the right to claim those things? Martin Luther, in his first book he wrote to defend the gospel and the Reformation, he wrote a book trying to defend from Scripture the gospel, the truths of the gospel. And where he went to, where he first went to, wasn't where I would go. He didn't go to Romans. He didn't go to Galatians. No, Martin Luther, to ground the gospel he was preaching, went to Song of Solomon 6.3, which says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. That he's arguing for union. That when we believe in Jesus, all that is his becomes ours by faith. So we have the audacity to call God our Father. Angels don't even do that. According to Jesus himself in John 8, we're not naturally a part of God's family. God is not our Father. Satan is. So how can we call that? How can we pray and call him Father? It's because our husband, that's his Father. We share his Father now. We share that sonship. We can be sons and daughters because of him. How can I be justified? Not by my own works. How can I stand before a holy God and not be damned forever and ever due to my sin? It's because of this union, because what was Christ, his good works, his good works on my behalf are now in my account. How can my debt be paid? It's because Christ, now married to me, takes on that debt and takes care of it on the cross. Everything that you have, every privilege, every promise of the Bible comes from this union, that we're married all the king's riches becomes ours. Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 23. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. 
It's the truths and promises that we see here in imagery that the king's riches becomes ours that grounds all contentment. Because the world wants to, in our consumeristic culture, wants to keep offering you things, saying if you buy this product, if you get this or that, you'll be happy. And our flesh does the same thing. We always have to be fighting. Our flesh thinks if only I had blank, I'd be happy. If only I had a better job, if only I had more money, if only I had uh, a relationship, if only I had good kids or a good husband or a good wife, then I would finally be happy. But we need to speak this truth to our souls. Everything worth having, we already have in Christ. Everything worth having, I already have in Jesus. This truth helps us also die well. When we are going to die, we're going to the king's palace, and we're not going to be strangers there. It's not going to be uh, a weird guest, uh, like we're in the weird guest room or anything like that. No, it will be our home. We're going home. The king's home will be our home. And this is the truth. The wedding and the, has finally happened. The queen has gone home. And then the psalm ends with a conclusion. God takes the microphone, as you will, in verses 16 through 17. I'll read, in place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. The spotlight now goes back to the king. And it's not clear in English, but in Hebrew, the your there is uh, masculine. He's now talking to the king again. And God's making promises. He's seen the wedding, and he's blessing it. He says, there will be children. God will not let the union between Christ and the church be a fruitless one. There will be spiritual children. People will be converted. People will come out of this union, and they are even to this day. The church of Christ never shrinks. Those who leave were never apart. But every day, every week, God is saving more and more people. The family of God is always growing. It never shrinks. God has promised that. And in verse 17, we see a promise that grounds all children's ministry. Why we do Awana, why we do uh, a Sunday school. God's promise here that he will, there will never be a generation of children uh, that will not remember, joyfully remember the name of Jesus. We're not doing this in vain. Even if it seems like I've done one, it seems like they're not getting any of this. But they, God has made a promise here. And it seems I looked in the bulletin today, we need help with uh, the children's ministry. We need help with that. And we have a promise here that gives us the strength to do that. There's not going to be a generation that will forget the name of Jesus. And do you want to be a part of that work? Do you want to help that name forever be remembered long after you die? God will make sure that will happen, whether you're in it or not. And then we also see here a promise that grounds missions. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. All the nations, there is not a nation in existence, no matter how hostile to the gospel, no matter how much they persecute him, no matter how much they are lukewarm to him, there is not a nation that will exist that will not praise Jesus. That's why we send people to the hard places. That's why we give to the Lottie Moon. Because God has made a promise. And it turns out that Psalm 45 ends in a way that it began. Psalm, verse 1, we saw the psalmist, his heart is overflowing. Thinking about the king, he sings with all of his might. In the same way, in verses 16 through 17, God the Father is not silent. 
He has seen all that Jesus is, and it even overwhelms the very heart of God, and he can't help but burst forth in blessing. The Jesus is so great and mighty and lovely and beautiful that it even overwhelms the heart of an almighty, immortal God. And if we think, we puny humans, that Jesus is somehow not enough for us, but it's enough for God Almighty, we are insane. We are blind. And I have sought this morning to overwhelm your heart with a subject that overwhelms the psalmist's heart and even God the Father's heart. I've sought to overwhelm your heart by presenting you the royal Christ, your groom, with an all of his beauty as he's presented to us in Psalm 45. I've sought to show you Christ and all of his loveliness. I've today preached to you a Christ who is most beautiful, a Christ who speaks nothing but grace, a Christ who conquers and acts in this world, a victorious Christ who never loses, a Christ who is truthful, humble, and righteous in everything he does, a Christ who is beautiful, a Christ who is worth denying family for, a Christ where everything sweet and good find their rest, a Christ who is God and man, a Christ worth worshiping, a Christ who is Lord of all men, a Christ who shares his royal majesty with undeserving sinners, a Christ that overwhelms the very heart of God. Church, look, turn your eyes to Jesus. Behold your King. If you want to overcome the love of this world, the love of sin, the love for despair, you're going to need more than just mind. You're going to need more than just stuff to do. You're going to need an object of love, a greater love, a greater affection that overwhelms your heart. And we must always be searching for him. We don't love him because we forgot about him. We always need to be meditating. We're so prone to wander, so prone to forget, but we need to be meditating, finding him, searching for a glimpse of him every day in his word. We're not just reading the Bible to get a little uh, helpful lesson for the day uh, or to just, hmm, that's cool. It happened a long time ago. No, the Bible is to teach us about Christ. We're looking for him. When you read the Bible, go mining for diamonds and gold of Christ's glory. It's hard work, but it's worth it. There is not a book in the Bible that does not proclaim his mercy and his glory and his grace. And if there is a book in the Bible that does, doesn't talk about Jesus, rip it out. My Bible has all the books in it. Just saying. There's not a book in the Bible that does not proclaim his glorious name. And we also, that's why we need each other. We're so prone to forget. We're so prone to stay in our own little bubbles and our own little lives. We need the church. The bride of Psalm 45 isn't us individually. It's the whole church, the church at Fisherville. We need each other if we are going to have a constant glimpse of Jesus that overflows our hearts. And the brothers and sisters here at Fisherville have given me so many glimpses of Christ's glorious power in their lives. When I first came here, Robert Komen showed me that God, our God, our Christ is not a novice. He is strong enough and loving enough to help us finish the race well with joy. Seth and Emily Singleton have showed me that our Lord is compassionate, that he listens to our prayers, and he's strong enough to keep baby Sage alive to this day. Our Lord, Lucas Mears, in Awana multiple years ago, told me that Jesus is stronger than all the dinosaurs. And when Jesus took Lucas home, Jesus has showed himself that strong and more 
by constantly taking care of the Mears family, even to this day, with their unfathomable loss. Nick and Kristen Woods have shown me that Jesus is so lovely and beautiful that he's worth leaving everything for, worth leaving family, friends, church, language, culture, to go to a place they've never been to proclaim that name, that Jesus is worth losing everything for. And all these brothers and sisters and more have shown me Christ, and it overwhelms my heart. And my prayer is that our hearts would overflow and that Fisherville would be a people known to not shut up about Jesus Christ. We can't, we can't shut up about him. I wish that's what would define us, that there would never be a time where the name of Jesus isn't praised, where his name isn't shared with unbelievers, and where his glories aren't being told among the saints with joy. I want you to have an overflowing heart that always gushes forth with his praises. And I'll close with a a quote from St. Bernard that I want to be my heart, that I want to be your heart. Bernard writes, The name of Jesus is not only light, but food. Also, yes, oil, without which all food of the soul is dry. His name is salt, without which, as condiment, whatever set before us is bland. In fine, in total, his name is honey in the mouth. His name is melody in the ear. His name is joy in the heart. And at the same time, his name is medicine. Every discourse where his name is not heard is absurd. Let us pray. Lord, you have shown us your Christ. You showed us our Christ, our groom. I pray that we would love him. I pray that our hearts would overflow in love, that we would not shut up about him, that we would not have a conversation or a discourse where his name is not heard in some way or another. And I thank you so much for uh, your goodness in him. And I pray this week, when the world is telling us this or that, we would go to his gracious lips. We would meditate on his glory, meditate on his beauty and all that he is. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Luke. What a... uh...